concert notes today on Scribble. Welcome to Scribble, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Rebecca Wee. And I'm Don Wooten. Composer Jacob Banks also writes concert notes. We'll ask him how he does that today on Scribble. That must be interesting to... Be a composer yourself, and then be asked to write notes to analyze music for a concert. It is. It is. Has been. I've been doing the gig for six or seven years now, and it is a fascinating. It's fascinating to be on both sides of the of the music making. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, this concert coming up next week is an unusual one, I think. It is. Yeah. And. Uh, you don't go to the usual sources for this, do you? <laughs> no, this this kind of and every season it would seem that the QCSO has one or two concerts that require um, require some extra background work. It's really funny because you know the first concert was was two works. Sometimes there will be only one work, mm-hmm. and you know if there's only one work for the symphony musicians, that means that they have you know a lot of music to practice for that one piece. But for me, <laughs> it's the number of works that makes more work for me, right? Sure. You know, it's not a it's not an eighty minute symphony. It wouldn't matter if they were each five minutes. The workload increases with how many works there are in the concert. So I consoled myself, uh, or I, I I told myself to enjoy that first concert because there were only two works, <laughs> but uh-huh. now I have five, and they're all they're all different. I mean, they're they're fascinating pieces. So it, it you know it, it isn't difficult uh, to come up with what to say, but certainly you're right in terms of sources. Uh, it's uh, uh, very different than, you know, the usual places I visit. Well, from Duke Ellington, uh, start right there to Block, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to Michael Doherty, and then to Johann Strauss Jr., and then to William Walton. Correct. And no, not a symphony among them, which is always an interesting, interesting program. But, uh, you know, uh, what's your assessment of Ellington as a composer? Uh very fine very i hold him in very high regard as a composer i think um you know it his situation is not entirely unlike gershwin's in that you have somebody with utter mastery of uh, a genre and talent to overflow and so there are certain things like in gershwin's more quote unquote purely classical works that demonstrate a little bit of naivete perhaps you might say but they are just loaded with talent you can just hear the musicality coming through um and you know i wouldn't use naive necessarily to describe uh, ellington's concert works but i think they have they just they have a a very immediate quality you know two analogies i can think of also more contemporary analogies are billy joel who also wrote some classical classical piano pieces, perhaps uh, quite a bit less 
widely known than uh, Ellington or Gershwin. Um, but another one is actually Ben Folds. Oh. Uh, the Ben Folds Five originally and now as solo artist, solo recording artist who has really launched into, you know, he was writing piano concertos probably five or six years ago. Huh. Just saw the CSO, Chicago Symphony sent out, they're having Ben Folds come. Um, and he's, it, it really is like f- always fun to see true raw talent spill into multiple genres. So that that's that's my assessment of Ellington. I've never written program notes for a Duke Ellington piece before. But one thing that I think is often overlooked is not, you know, because part of it is fitting Ellington into how we think, you know, Beethoven, for example, or mm-hmm. and most of these composers, Bloch, we would assume this, uh, Walton, we, Walton is a special case in this regard. But writing program notes for Rhapsody in Blue, for example, Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, Many times people fail to note that Gershwin himself did not do the orchestration. Yeah. You do the yeah. West Side Story, symphonic dances from West Side Story, and the uh, Leonard Bernstein himself, though he oversaw the orchestration, did not do the orchestration himself. So there, a lot of times when we have programs like this, and this is the case with the Ellington too, that it had been reorchestrated, I, I think by his son, his son had some input in it, and then there was another orchestrator brought in to, to sort of really make it full orchestra. Um, those are very, those are things that are often missed in program notes because people who write program notes are often viewing things from the sort of composer model that Beethoven gave us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that isn't just true of orchestration, but that's true of a lot of things. So a lot of my work writing program notes is disrupting a little bit those patterns we have of thinking about how music is made. Yeah. Uh, another one is, you know, get a Rossini overture. You know, and, and we, we, you realize that we have a certain impression of what composers are and how they work. Um, like when we think of Beethoven's symphonies as basically holy writ, Mm-hmm. And they were just sort of came forth from the composer and you would, you know, you just, it's like this, this sacred text. And then Rossini, who was every bit as successful, if not more in his lifetime and incredibly productive during his active years, he rewrote and revised. Yeah. He had so many steamers, I mean, really bad. And, and he <laughs> was like a Hollywood composer. So when, you know, when, when the symphony programs, you know, over Rossini overtures, it allows me an opportunity. I always feel it's a really great chance to sort of to take, you know, I, I revere Beethoven, believe me, but to take down the, the, to question some of the assumptions that people have about how music is written and received um, that we realize are just kind of tied in with one model of being a composer. So you raise a question just about who you're writing these notes for. Hmm. So it's the audience that's hmm. coming to hear it, but do you assume how much do you assume they know, or how much do you have to provide? Yes, that's a great question, and I I have been criticized. Uh, how's that for some <laughs> passive voice there? I have been criticized from time to time, not a lot. Mostly, I get feedback that is very positive. Although, as we know, as writers, the negative feedback doesn't always reach us. Oh, right? tell me about uh, that <laughs> until until you know a heated a heated moment when you know alcohol's involved. But other than that, you know, but the negative feedback I will sometimes get is that on a musical level that I pitch a little high. Like that, that, I assume a little bit more musical knowledge, um, and you know that's a criticism I have responded to somewhat. But you know, when you talk about who do I see as my audience, um, 
you know, there it's it's really widely varied. Of course, yeah. But there is a base assumption that there they have an openness to classical music. Mm-hmm. Or they wouldn't be there. Correct. <laughs> yeah. And the other assumption I make about them is that they think this is not universally true because I've talked to plenty of people for whom this, at least in their minds, this is not true. Most people, even symphony goers, certainly in the Quad Cities, think that they don't know anything. They think, huh. well, I'm so dumb about classical, or like, I don't get this or whatever. And and so I, and then there are the ones who think they know everything, sure. right? So you've got the, the on the one side, people who are like, oh, I don't know. I mean, I just, I feel, and they feel they can't, they just feel so overwhelmed by it. So part of my job is for that for that mm-hmm. side of my audience to say, you know what, you're here and yeah. you love music, and actually everything else is subordinate to that. Yeah. So yeah. like like they, I try in many ways with that sort of branch of the audience to encourage them to trust their sensory experience of music. Mm. That there isn't – they don't need to do Roman numeral analyses, which is right. sorry for the jargon, but they don't need like – they don't need harmonic – like they, they don't need vast knowledge. And so I have toned down over the years in some ways the technical things I talk about. Sure. Um, but but really I think, you know, people, people hear more than they think they do. So well, there's that branch of the audience. Yeah. The other branch of the audience is people who think they know everything. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, for example, I'll give an example. One of my favorite program notes I wrote was <laughs> Eroica, uh, Beethoven's Third Symphony, which everybody thinks they, like, understand. You know, it's like, oh, well, it was dedicated to Napoleon, and then Napoleon made him mad, so he went and he scratched out the <laughs> Napoleon's name. and Right? We all know this. I mean, this is, these are historical facts. But – Usually that story is told in in kind of a, a like Beethoven and his politics, and um, you know and and how angry he was at Napoleon. For me, you know, in some ways that that narrative is so attractive because it takes two really uh, uh, important historical figures and sure. smashes them together, and <laughs> people really like to think about that. But the so I just I'm like so this has been said so many times. So how can I like – you have to acknowledge this. But what I did was having read um, read a lot in, in around that time, I was reading a lot just about Beethoven and his relationships. And you realize that he did this to everyone he loved. Huh. Yeah. They all – Made him mad, so he would oh, be, he would be the, the von Breunings, like he would just be like like best friends with them, and absolutely they would just like at their house every day, and completely, and oh, and then something, something would make happen. him mad, and he would write them out of his life. Well, you know, Jacob, I'm thinking of George Bernard Shaw, and he was writing about the Eroica, and he compared it to a funeral procession. I forget the one movement. Where the second movement, yeah, yeah. Yeah, starts out slowly, says you're going through the city, and then once you get to the outskirts under the cemetery, then all of a sudden the horseman picks up the speed, and you reach for something to hold on to, mm-hmm. and then when you get to the cemetery, it slows down again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I thought, that's an interesting analogy. It is, that is. Well, I mean, far be it from me to, to second-guess George Bernard Shaw on one hand. <laughs> on the other hand... You know, and this was something actually. There was a professional hornist who had read my notes who said, "You know what I like about your notes is that you don't people." You know, she had interacted with a lot of audience members, and she said, "People always want to know how should I feel." 
they they hmm. want the notes to tell them how should they feel when they listen oh, to the music like that should guide and and my approach is to not answer that question yeah my approach is to so you know Shaw's Shaw's approach in that case is to sort of like I'm helping the listener by providing this narrative now there is a funeral march yeah. in the third yeah. symphony and it really is Napoleon's funeral march I mean Beethoven said I wrote you know when Napoleon died he's like I wrote music for this you know, yeah. so is that that's unquestionable. That's a historical fact. But and you know, it is Shaw's is intriguing in itself. But I I always feel like that's what you know that that kind of narrative building can be interesting. Um, certainly as a as an experiment. But when it comes to program notes, it's, I would just like to give people tools to. And the confidence, again. So for those who lack mm-hmm. confidence, the confidence to listen well. For those who think they know everything, something, something different some to kind of disrupt angle. the dominant narrative. Well, you know, yeah. you've got five different composers here. Yeah, yeah. And they're all quite different. Uh, no doubt. Uh, you know, Duke Ellington, the three black kings, uh, Magi, Solomon, and Martin Luther King. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> then Ernest Bloch Schwomo. King and Solomon, then, yeah. And then uh, Michael Doherty's dead Elvis, mm-hmm. <laughs> the on. king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the king. And, and my then, kids, my kids have been obsessed lately with American Pie, the song American Pie. You know, oh, where sure. like the king, yeah. the king, uh, the the jester dance for the king and queen. So, yeah. so I've been thinking about Elvis a lot lately, you know, <laughs> based on that song. So, yeah. But when you get through Johann Strauss Jr. and the Great Emperor Waltz, right? Wonderful. But then you get to William Walton's. Movie music. Right. How do you treat that? The movie music? Yeah. Well, movie music's hard. It's a very <laughs> tricky one. You know, the one that comes to mind most recently is the Cowboys Overture of John Williams that was played a few years ago. Um, but movie music's tricky because people love movie music. <laughs> and it is in most people's minds classical music. But the concerns of a composer when scoring a film are so different than sure. creating a, a concert work. Um, so, you know, that I, I, in that case, I mean, the approach, what is the approach to writing the program notes? People, there's so much background to give just on the film and, um, and Walton's work as, as a composer in society, which meant that he composed for all kinds of different things. Um, so you provide that background, but the tricky part is to gear people to listen in more than just a narrative, right? Mm-hmm. In more than – because yeah. if it's like – if the point is to just tell the story of Henry V, then like let's just watch the movie. Why yeah, do we need a composition, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Well, and granted, I mean this is a, this is the 20th century and so yep. it's, this is a commercial, it, it, you know, you know, even Wagner, you know, he – he wrote, sent out right. He was happy to call it "Ride of the Valkyries" and make everybody, you know, play it. So there's, the, you know, the question: Why the concert piece rather than movie music? Well, that's also a, again a, a publicity generating and revenue generating action for a composer to take. But um, you know, when you're right about the, it's a different thing because they are given the times and the scenes right. and that'll write something to work with it. Yes, one of the mistakes people occasionally make on programming to save a little work. We'll just play the entire 
soundtrack. Oh, no. And that is the dullest thing Agreed. I can mm. think of. Yes. And if you get the soundtrack to Gone with the Wind, you'll be tearing out your hair. Is it really? I've not listened to that on its own. Wow. Oh, no, soundtracks. I mean, just get a CD. Or CDs. Yeah. Who gets yeah, CDs yeah. anymore? But, you know, you get you just get the soundtrack to X, Y, and Z movie, and it, yeah. it like, just doesn't work, and nor should it. Right. Because, exactly. you know, we, people like to think of pure music, and certainly some people who love symphonic music like to think of music as sort of purely of itself. But everything, every bit of music has a function in a social context. And so to yeah. try to, to, you know, something that is completely – and frankly, I mean, I'll just say this generally about John Williams because – um, I would say if composer, if if your your average person on the street knows a composer, an active living composer by name, it will be John Williams. Mm. Uh, perhaps you know James Horner or Danny Elfman, but the film composers are in their minds composers, classical composers. I'm going to offer an unpopular opinion. I hope you don't lose listeners over this. <laughs> I don't think John Williams' concert music is that great. No, it isn't. But I think it's highly overrated. And and he's a gifted composer, but he is good at what he does. He is he has found his sector. But Jacob, you know the problem with music, classical music, is what attracts people to all music is the melody, hmm. and for <clears throat> compositions. It's melody plus structure. Hmm. What do they do with that? Hmm. And uh, movie music is the melody. That is that is true. No, I think that that um, I I agree. I agree that movie music is very melodically driven, although atmospherically driven too. Sometimes yeah. it's just chords, or it's just even sound effects, or and things. That's what's dull, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly when you try to import it. Uh, actually, I think. And I had this, um, I, I've had this idea in formation for a long time as a composer, not necessarily as an annotator, is that actually it isn't melody, it's rhythm. And this uh. is why those movie scores don't work. Because when it comes to passages of rhythm, something will be in a certain sort of meter and time for the moment that's appropriate to the film, to the film. but then will shift and it will shift in a way that's appropriate to the film. But with that change of rhythm, when you don't have it justified by the change in mm-hmm. the action, then that's why it's so unnerving. It was I, I had a friend who was a, a conductor. I mean, they say if you're friends with a conductor, you just don't know him very well yet. But um, <laughs> I was friends with a conductor. And uh, that's not true, though. I have many, many wonderful conductor friends. But uh, I just love that line. Um, but, the, you know, he, he was doing a graduate program in conducting. And he his job was to do – was he did the Berg Violin Concerto, Alban Berg's Violin Concerto, which is sort of a great atonal masterpiece uh, of the 20, early 20th century. And as roughly – I mean, atonal is a – problematic word but it, most people understand it to be not normal tonal music so he for this performance had a 25 minute presentation explaining it for the benefit of the audience in his mm-hmm. mind and after and then they played the concerto and it was like extremely well received you know lots of applause and it was great and then his dad happened to be there like only dads can he came afterwards and he goes wow that and his dad's not a classical music person Mm. he goes that was awesome wow 
but why did you talk for 25 minutes beforehand? <laughs> and so my friend, and you know, was laughing like, you know, stuff my dad says on one hand. Uh-huh. On the other hand, it was like, well, why? Like, why? Because the Berg Violin Concerto connects with audiences sure, very quickly sure. and, and well. And it does have tonal elements in it, but it also has some harmonically wild moments. Why does it connect? And our theory was, and I think it's true, it was rhythm. Yeah. It was, it's like, that is uh, really the key. And now we're talking composition here, not so much uh, uh, program notes. But I think I would, you know, maybe there's an analogy to be made that your program notes need to have a certain flow and rhythm to them. But how do you do somebody like Michael Doherty? <laughs> well, it, my personal approach to, well, again, it's for me, it's like, I'm an, I, I, I don't like, I don't like narratives. I really don't. And there is a narrative about 20th century music that says that there was a riot at the Rite of Spring, and ever since then, the composers of importance have been scandalizing their audiences. And um, and the you know the there's a search the search for originality and creativity is to find ever more abstruse methods. In, in order to reach the next level. Now, you can agree or disagree with it. I personally disagree with it, but it's also a very tired story mm-hmm. um, because, you know, composers really, you know, in certain programs are trained to have that uh, that Rite of Spring riot in mind, you know. And never <laughs> yeah. mind the fact that the riot was really about the choreography and not about Stravinsky's yeah. music, right? <laughs> um, you know, that's my first bit of narrative disruption. But that's why I love when we have works by Michael Doherty uh, and other composers. I mean, the, the the annoying word that I don't love, and I'm sure postmodernism, you know, oh, let's yeah, talk about yeah. loaded words. Yep. But um, there's the, – he is – was – and minimalists are the same way, you know, um, especially the early minimalists, not so much John Adams. But they're very, very disruptive yeah. to this – to the concept of – uh, what I call high modernism, uh, that, you know, that Elliot Carter, Pierre Boulez are kind of the ultimate achievements in music and everyone else. And they just, they, I mean, they're, so that's what I like about Doherty is not so, because his music is very accessible, but it's also really, I mean, it's, it's akin to Andy Warhol. It's, huh. it's very, very similar to Andy Warhol and, 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 uh, you know, the disruptions to ways people think about art that Warhol or, or Liechtenstein, too, I think. So. Well, you know, it's true that um, <clears throat> I'm arguing with uh, uh, Jim Dixon a lot about music. And uh, I said, okay, who was the major symphonist of this last century? He said, Stravinsky. I said, you're crazy. <laughs> I said, it's... Symphony it of Psalms. Yeah. And... <laughs> the thing is, if you look at the structure, yeah, it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. But the... Concert goers want to enjoy the music hmm. in a not necessarily an intellectual way. Perhaps, yeah. yeah. They really are moved by the music. Well, people are really moved by certain Stravinsky works. Oh, yeah, but including the, Symphony of Psalms. Yeah, but the early works and I saw a recreation of the Rite of Spring, and I would have rioted too. Choreography is <laughs> dreadful. <laughs> dreadful. Well, yeah, it is. It is most definitely of its time. But yeah, no, Stravinsky. Yeah, he's a funny one. It's, so Jim Dixon didn't didn't mention Shostakovich. No. Well, I was arguing for Rayvon Williams. Oh, oh, well. I have a special case. Do you really? You have yeah. a special, a special love for Rayvon Williams? Yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it interests me the way the French and the British broke away 
from the Germanic model. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that was considered and still is considered heresy. Correct. But, no, the, no. Uh, in certain circles, uh, certainly the the composers that Jim Dixon is most closely associated with, the most chief among them, Charles Warren, and yeah. there is a there is a they are heretics. Uh, you know, Von Williams is a heretic. Uh, Finzi's a heretic. Um, <laughs> you know, and and yeah, so that that. But it's funny because you know, the academic training and composition, we we learn those attitudes. Mm-hmm. And what, what to unlearning the most, them is what was the most difficult thing to write notes for? Uh, well, you say, you talk about it in the past tense. Uh, <laughs> I as, wondered. Although this is gonna this is airing this uh, this interview will air. It, I better be done by the time this interview airs, right? <laughs> um, but the most honestly, in some ways, Johann Strauss Jr. is will be <laughs> and was <laughs> the most. When I have to write, and we did Voices of Spring. Um, prior to that, it was uh, the Blue Danube. I mean, these come up regularly. Mm-hmm. And it is tricky to write about Johann Strauss Jr.'s music. And I love it, actually, for what it is. But he produced so much of it, and the context for which it was produced is all pretty much the same. So, like, Voices of Spring was easy because it had a vocal story that could be told even though it wasn't performed vocally. But it's sort of like you kind of – it's like writing about Joplin rags, uh-huh. It's like, oh, we're programming this rag. And I can tell you generally a lot about Joplin rags. Zeroing in on one particular rag and saying, like, what is the story of this one? It's like one of a huge collection, and, and it's like Mozart violin concertos. I mean, we just know them as a body of work, you know. So um, there will certainly be things. But I find I find that difficult, difficult to Th- those kinds of things difficult to write for. So I had just a sort of compositional, practical question. We've yeah. got these listed. How long, how much time do you have to invest? I know it must vary, but, but yeah, how much you, you're still working on some of it. Yes, and, exactly. And so is it how, how much warning do you have? How much time do you, are you given? And then <laughs> far more warning than I, you know, than you would guess uh-huh. from the, from when I finally when submit them. The it's just life is busy, as all writers know. Yeah, uh-huh. but yeah, I would say it's probably about four hours investment per work. Or okay, so. and I think as much as possible, even with works that I'm very familiar with. I take the time to listen to the pieces yeah. because I I think I know so much about Beethoven 7, um, but to listen to a recording of Beethoven 7 with, with fresh eyes, it's not always possible. I mean, sometimes there aren't recordings available of some of the, certainly the newer pieces. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit tricky to... Uh, to find that, but it's about it's. I would say that's about that's about it. Sometimes less, sometimes more, depending yeah. on you know. Again, because there's five works on this one, they will be. I mean, Beethoven nine one work, so I would probably I invested more time in that one. Um, but I also didn't do my listening guide, so I make these listening guides that kind of movement by movement give people something to listen mm. for. Okay. I didn't do that with Beethoven nine because. It's so overwhelming, and so it's like I just want people to sit there and, and be it. immersed in the music as opposed to giving them guideposts along the way. So do you have um, a space limit? Like I how? don't, actually. I, I And I do the layout myself. Oh, okay. So I, and um, I, tried, I, I just sort of try to think of physical layout. I, don't, I try to do – I don't try to, I try not to do five pages. Yeah, yeah. Because then you yeah. can't do the, you know, then you need the insert. So I try to do about six sides. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Um, but sometimes I get up to to eight sides. So there's a there's a publishing side of it. Sure. Too, too, yeah. That I. Yeah. Well, we will find out what kind of a job you did <laughs> next week. <laughs> I think uh, I you know it's it it is always uh yeah it's a challenge uh to to fit it into life. I think this mm-hmm. is true for writers of all kinds, and I have composing to do too. So you know there's it's it, it takes the same kind of. Uh, Drain, but maybe next summer I'll yeah. do what I always say I'm going to do, which is what my predecessor Dennis Lofton did, write all summer. So, yeah. well, you know, it's it's been a treat to get an insight into what goes yep. on when you get those program notes, and uh, you do a great job. Thank you. Really you. Do. And Thank you. But uh, I was really intrigued with this program, with the diversity of it. I thought, yeah. how is he going to deal with this? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, you know, th- there's more background to give. Uh, you know, you don't you don't have to mention that Beethoven's German every time we have a, a <laughs> yeah. symphony show. Up. Well, that'll do it for now. But thank you very much, yeah. Jacob Banks. Thank you so much. Go to the concert next week and read the program notes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> be back next week when Rebecca and I will be here for another edition of Scribble. Thank you.